please turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. That's Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. Uh, the title of this morning's message is Only Believe and All Will Be Well. Let's begin by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you uh, for this special day, a Sunday, Lord, when we can join together, even though it's only online for now, and worship you, sing your praises, and gather around your word. Lord, we thank you this morning that you are a speaking God, that you speak to us through the words of the Bible, through your Holy Spirit who is with us. And we pray this morning, Lord, that we would hear you once again. Lord, please help us now. Help us to be attentive to what you have to say to us. Help us to go away this morning more in awe of Jesus, more in love with him and all that he has done for us. We pray this for your glory and in his name. Amen. Sometimes a lot can happen in one year. So far in 2020, we've had Australian bushfires, uh, a, an American presidential impeachment, royal family members stepping down, the UK officially leaving the EU, a global pandemic, and of course, the death of George Floyd. They're all dramatic events in their own way, but each one of them is largely disconnected from the others. The only thing that unites them is that they've all happened in the first half of 2020. Sometimes a lot can happen in one year. And sometimes a lot can happen in one day. In Luke chapter 8, Luke records for us one particular day in the life of Jesus that is filled from end to end with a series of dramatic events. From the calming of a storm to the deliverance of a demon-possessed man to the double miracle that we're going to focus on this morning of a woman healed and a little girl raised from the dead. When Jesus is involved, a lot can happen in one day. But unlike the seemingly random and disconnected events of 2020, the events in Luke 8 are not random and disconnected at all. They are miracles with a message. Together, they teach us something significant about the rescue and salvation that Jesus came to offer. And they teach us that Jesus has the power to reverse the ruin that sin has brought on us. And the two miracles we're going to focus on at the end of chapter eight this morning take us right to the heart of that message. Human sin, that's our rejection of God, the way that we've turned our backs on him, leads to human brokenness and suffering in all sorts of ways. But at its heart, sin's most devastating effects can be seen in two particular things, in separation and in death. Sin separates us from the God who made us and loves us, and ultimately sin leads to death. And these two things are epitomized and illustrated in the lives of the two people that we're going to meet in this morning's passage. One of them is a nameless woman uh, afflicted by an incurable disease which separates her from everyone, including God. The other is a respected leader who is overcome with fear because his daughter is dying and he's powerless to prevent it. Here in Luke 8, on this one eventful day, they both encounter Jesus. 
And in two miracles that are beautifully intertwined, Jesus shows us that he is able to save us all from sin's most devastating effects. He shows us, these two miracles show us that he can save us from separation from God and that he can save us from death itself. That's the message of these two miracles this morning. So let's look at them more closely together. We're looking at Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. I'm just going to read the first three verses, actually, to begin with, and then we'll let the story unfold as we go. So please follow along and please keep your Bible open as we'll keep returning to it. Luke 8, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus's feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. Jesus has just returned from a trip across the lake where he's freed a demon-possessed man and then been urged to turn around and go away by the locals there. But in contrast to his frosty reception over there, on his return to the Jewish side of the lake, a great crowd is waiting for him, Luke tells us. They're waiting to welcome him. Many people want to hear him and see him and get near to him. It's not an unusual scene in the Gospels. Until that is, something striking happens right in the middle of the crowd and we're introduced to a fearful father. All of a sudden, a man can be seen falling down at Jesus's feet and imploring him to come quickly to his house. And as the crowds around look in a little bit more closely, they see that it's none other than Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, which would have raised a few eyebrows. Jairus was an important and highly respected leader in the community. But what was he doing at Jesus's feet? This was not a normal sight. The religious leaders of the day uh, were usually the last people to approve of Jesus and his ministry. But even those who did approve didn't usually fall down at Jesus's feet. But two things have driven Jairus there to his knees. First of all, there's his desperation. His only daughter, just 12 years old, is dying. And second, there's his belief that Jesus can do something to save her. And perhaps we can relate because these are, in fact, the same two things common to every person who has ever chosen to put their trust in Jesus, who's ever chosen to go to him for rescue. First of all, an awareness of how desperate our need is. And second, a belief that only he can do something to save us. This is the only way to come to Jesus. And wonderfully, it is all that Jesus asks us to bring with us when we come. In an instant, Jesus responds to Jairus's plea for help by setting out along the road with him towards his house and his daughter. Jairus doesn't need to plead or barter to twist Jesus's arm or to promise to repay him. He only has to ask. Humble faith is the only key we need to unlock the floodgates of his mercy. And surely Jairus's hopes must have soared in this moment. Jesus is coming to his house. He's going to heal his daughter. But it's not going to be an easy journey. 
Because as verse 42 tells us, the crowds continue to press in all around them as they go. It must have been excruciatingly slow for Jairus as he and Jesus inch slowly along the road, rather like an ambulance today trying to reach someone in trouble, uh, but slowed down by heavy traffic. Until suddenly their progress grinds to a halt entirely as Jesus is interrupted by a second desperate person, a suffering outcast. Verse 43, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. We mustn't miss Jesus's heart for people here. Jairus may be frustrated by this interruption. We're not, we're not don't know for sure, but Jesus certainly isn't. The gospel writers tell us repeatedly that when Jesus sees people in need, his heart is filled, not with frustration or annoyance, not with disgust or despair, but with the most intense and heartfelt compassion. He is always willing to stop and listen, ready to be interrupted, ready to rescue every single person who comes to him with their need. His heart has already gone out in compassion to Jairus, but with no lessening of his love for Jairus and his daughter, now his heart goes out to someone else as well. To an unnamed and desperate woman who has had a discharge of blood, most likely some kind of uterine bleeding, for 12 long years. For as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, this woman has suffered from a chronic illness. And it has brought ruin upon her life. She's constantly bleeding, which means she's suffering continually. Added to that, Luke tells us that she spent everything on physicians and medical treatments. Yet for all of that, she's been told that no one can heal her. And perhaps worst of all, her condition would have made people see her as perpetually unclean in Jewish society. As it says in Leviticus 15, verse 25, when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge. It's Old Testament Levitical law. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. But the law also said that someone, anyone who touched her would become unclean as well. So her illness would have made her an outcast, cut off from physical contact with her family and friends and excluded from attending worship at the temple and the synagogue. Her sense of isolation and separation must have been profound. It, it really is a tragic situation. She's ill, she's destitute, she's an outcast and she lost all hope of ever getting better. Until that is, she sees Jesus. And she's certain then in that moment that somehow he can help her. Excuse me. But she doesn't approach him like Jairus did, falling at his feet in full view of everyone. She wants to remain anonymous. She's ashamed. She's full of fear. She presses her way secretly through the crowd. If the people around her know who's brushing up against them, uh, they'd be enraged. They'd be furious at being infected by her uncleanness. Her one hope is that she can reach Jesus 
and just be able to touch the back of Jesus's garment in such a way that even Jesus won't notice what's happening. And then she can be on her way, hopefully with at least some kind of improvement in her condition. But things don't go quite as she planned. Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Her bleeding stops just as instantly as the wind and the waves stopped earlier in chapter eight at Jesus's command. Just one touch and she is completely well. In contrast to 12 long years that she's been bleeding and the long line of physicians who couldn't help her, Jesus's power to heal is immediate. With just a single touch of his robe, 12 years of frustration and futility are reversed in a heartbeat. But she's not gone unnoticed. Verse 45, and Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. When she realizes that she can't hide from Jesus, she comes trembling and falls down before him. She's visibly frightened and afraid because she doesn't know how Jesus is going to receive her or what he's going to say to her. Will he be shocked at the state of her or berate her for her timidity? Will he take her healing back from her? With the whole crowd watching and waiting to find out, it must have been a terrible moment for this woman. And surely Jesus, surely Jesus being Jesus, knows who's touched him and why. So why does he insist that she step forward and show herself? Well, I think there are two important reasons. The first is, reason number one is, he calls her forward to tell her what he's done for her. And it's safe to say it's far more than I think she could have hoped for or imagined. Just listen to what he says to her. And bearing in mind just how overcome with fear and trembling she is as she falls at her feet, just imagine how incredible it would be, it must have been, to hear these words from Jesus. Verse 48, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I mean, could his words be any more gentle and kind? Every word carefully chosen to comfort and reassure her and to tell her three things in particular. First of all, he calls her daughter which is such a tender title to give to one who has been rejected for so long. For 12 long years, she's been an outcast, cut off from society and cut off from God. But now the saviour has welcomed her and given her a whole new relationship with God. With that word daughter testifying to her adoption into God's family. Because you see, the rescue that Jesus came to offer is fundamentally relational. Salvation is not like some kind of uh, aid parcel that is dropped from 5,000 feet in the air. It's not about just getting zapped one time uh, with forgiveness, but otherwise life remains the same. 
like I said at the beginning, one of sin's most devastating effects is the way it separates us from God. But Jesus removes that separation. He restores our relationship with God by drawing us into relationship with himself. Secondly, he tells her more about what he's just done for her by saying, your faith has made you well. Which is even more striking when we realise that actually in the original language, Jesus is using the exact same words that he spoke to the forgiven sinner back in chapter 7. What he literally says there and here is, your faith has saved you. He wants her to know that he's not just healed her physically, but spiritually too. He's given her the gift of salvation and all because she believed he could make her clean. And yet we can't miss the fact that her faith in him was far from perfect. It was weak and full of trembling. But Jesus deals kindly and gently with her because he doesn't look for perfect faith in any of us. Only a genuine faith that is willing to reach out and trust him. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not quench, Matthew 12 verse 20 says. It's not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves us. Our faith might be as small as a mustard seed. But if it's in a mighty saviour, then it's enough. And Jesus is a mighty saviour. And it's precisely because he is so mighty to save that he is able to save even those whose faith in him is most fragile and small. I hope that that encourages you this morning, especially if you're still in the place right now of deciding whether you might put your trust, your faith in Jesus for the very first time. This woman reached out to Jesus Uh, in the midst of her fear and uncertainty, but it was enough for Jesus to save her. The third and final thing he says to her is go in peace. She came to him in turmoil, in desperation and fear, but now she can go away in peace because she's healed. She's no longer cut off from the community of God's people. And most importantly of all, she's no longer separated from God. Philip Ryken writes, these are the blessings that Jesus has for everyone who reaches out to him in faith. He gives us his love, making us the sons and daughters of God. We do not have to hold back alone and afraid, avoiding other people and hardly daring to approach God. No matter what we have done or what we have suffered, Jesus will welcome us into the Father's love with open arms and he will give us his peace watching over us forever with the benediction of his grace. Within his own person, on the basis of his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus has the power to heal us in all the ways we need to be healed. From sorrow, abandonment, abuse, depression, and the guilt of our sin, all we need to do is take hold of him by faith and trust his power to save. That's the first reason that Jesus calls out to her to come and meet him so that he can tell her all that he's done for her. But there's another reason he calls her forward as well, and that is to tell the crowd what he can ultimately do for them. You remember we said at the beginning uh, that we said earlier that according to the Old Testament law, when a person bled, it made them ceremonially, ritually unclean. 
And the law also said that anyone who touched an unclean person would themselves become unclean. And so the Jewish people and the religious leaders especially would be very careful about who and what they touched. Because when clean things come into contact with unclean things, they too become unclean. It's a kind of a strange concept for us, I know, but I think we can relate to the principle. It, if I take your clean cutlery out just before a meal and I use it to stir some uh, moldy leftovers in our food bin, the clean cutlery doesn't make the moldy food clean. The moldy food makes the clean cutlery dirty, makes it unclean because uncleanness spreads and it infects things and you wouldn't want to use the cutlery. But look at what happens when Jesus comes into contact with a woman who is ceremonially unclean. Uniquely, her uncleanness doesn't rub off on him like Leviticus says it should. That's what everyone would expect. But instead, Jesus's cleanness rubs off on her and makes her clean and well. And Jesus wants the crowds to see this, to get this, not just so that they'll welcome her back into the community, but more importantly, so they'll understand what he has come to do for them too. He has come to make sinners clean, not just to do away with the symbolic rituals of uncleanness and impurity, but to actually deal with the real sin that separates us from God. This broken and desperate woman is a picture of us all. Her condition is a physical picture of what sin does to us spiritually. It cuts us off from the God who made us. It makes us outcasts. It separates us from the fullness of life that is found in knowing and worshipping him and being a part of his family. But Jesus can take our uncleanness and make us clean. He can take our sin and wash away its stain because that is what he ultimately came to accomplish at the cross. In his dying, he took our sin upon himself. He experienced the separation from God that we deserve so that in exchange, we would experience the welcome that he deserves. By his death, he can make us truly clean and acceptable to God. As it says in Isaiah 53 verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is the real gift that Jesus ultimately came to give. It's the best gift he could give to the woman who had been bleeding for 12 long years. And it's the same gift that he still offers to us today, to all who believe and trust in him to be saved. Like I said at the beginning, Jesus can save us from our separation from God. And that's the message of this first miracle here. But what about Jairus's daughter? What's going to happen to her? If Jesus can heal an illness of 12 years, surely he can heal a 12-year-old daughter. In spite of the interruption to their journey, presumably Jairus's hopes are even stronger now. He's just seen up close and personal what Jesus can do. He's seen the healing power of Jesus in action. But then tragedy strikes. Verse 49, while Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. 
seems that Jesus's kindness to this sick woman has resulted in the death of Jairus's daughter. And as the messengers from the house say, why bother the teacher anymore? Because we all have limits, don't we? There's only so much that one person can do to help. There's only so many people that one person can help at any one time. Yet what about Jesus? Does he have limits? Is there only so much that he can do to help? Surely even his powers don't extend beyond the grave. Well, certainly that's the assumption of these messengers. It's too late, Jairus, they say. Don't bother Jesus with this anymore. There's nothing now that anyone can do. It's an easy assumption, but is it the right one? Listen to Jesus's response. Verse 50, but Jesus on hearing this answered Jairus, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. Now, Luke doesn't explicitly say so, but Jairus must be overcome with grief at this point. His only daughter has died, the one he was so desperate for Jesus to save, and now she's gone. Surely his tears are flowing freely now. Maybe he's and this time in grief before Jesus. And Jesus' first words to this grieving father are words of comfort. Do not fear. What sweet words they must be to hear from the lips of Jesus. Did you know that this is the most repeated command in the Bible? Well over a hundred times, God says to us, do not fear, fear not, don't be afraid. And now here, Jesus's first words to Jairus after the death of his only child are the very same words, do not fear. But he doesn't just leave it at that. No, Jesus goes on to tell him why he need not fear. Only believe, he says, and she will be well. Jesus is asking Jairus to trust him. He's saying, don't fear, have faith in me and she'll be well. It's a big ask, isn't it? Jairus had believed that Jesus could heal his daughter, but can he believe that Jesus can even conquer death? Like the woman before him, there's nothing to suggest here that Jairus's faith was strong and certain at this point, but he does trust Jesus enough to carry on the journey to his house with him. And that's enough for Jesus. Verse 51, and when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. It must have been a terrible sight to see one so young lying there, so lifeless. But Jesus said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. It is an amazing statement, isn't it? She is not dead, but sleeping. And the mourners laugh with scorn because they know she really is dead. And yet, look at what happens next. Verse 54, taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat. Now, let's notice again just how closely and personally Jesus is involved here in this moment of great need. 
Just as he had been when he drew the suffering woman forward to meet him earlier, he, he could have raised uh, Jairus' daughter from afar without ever traveling to his house. He could have raised her just with a word from across the room. He could have raised her with a simple touch, but he draws in close enough to take her by the hand. Her fragile and lifeless hand, now enclosed in the hand of her creator. And then he speaks just two simple words. Child, arise. He calls her. Child, arise. They're the kind of words her mother and father might have used most mornings to tell her that it was time to wake up. But Jesus is using them to wake her from the dead, which tells us something quite incredible. That for Jesus, it's as easy to raise somebody from the dead as it is for us to rouse somebody from sleep. And at the sound of his voice, in an instant, her spirit returns. She draws a breath and opens her eyes. And there is Jesus. He's holding her hand. It's his smiling face looking down at her. And it's not difficult to see here in this moment a great draft of comfort for every Christian to draw on. A picture to encourage us as we contemplate our own deaths one day. Because the New Testament repeatedly describes death for the Christian as nothing more than sleeping with the accompanying promise that no sooner will we close our eyes in this life than we'll wake up at home with Jesus. Just go read uh, 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Thessalonians 4 later on. I love what Tim Chester writes here too. He says, for many of us, I suspect death is our nightmare scenario. Push back beyond our immediate fears and what we fear is death, whether it's heights or the dark, the lurking fear behind them all is death. But with Jesus, death is no longer something to be feared. Death is not the end. Jesus offers life after death, eternal life. The worst that can happen has become the gateway to life. Bad things still happen, sometimes very bad things, but we don't need to be afraid. Jesus says to us today in the midst of our fears, don't be afraid, just believe. For Jairus's daughter, Luke tells us her recovery is instantaneous. She gets up at once and her parents are amazed. And we too are meant to be amazed at this miracle and its message. But what is its message? Is it simply when you get sick or when someone you love dies, just turn to Jesus and believe that he can make you better? Now, he is, of course, quite capable of healing us like that if he chooses. But oftentimes he doesn't, because that's not the real message of this miracle. And that's clear enough in the final words of this chapter, verse 56. Her, her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now, Jesus often tells people in the Gospels not to tell other people what he's done for them. And the reason is always the same. He doesn't want people to latch on to a far smaller idea, the wrong idea of what he's really come to do for, uh, for them. In this case, he didn't come just to temporarily fix us up and delay our dying for a few more years. He came to deal with our greatest problem, our sin, so that 
he could save us from death forever. Now, Luke 8 reveals the heart of God for us, that he cares about us. He cares about our pain and our plight as we live our lives in a broken world. But his love for us is so great that he isn't willing to settle for temporary fixes. The measure of his love for us is seen in this, that the one who healed an outcast and raised a dead girl, dead girl to life was willing to be cast out by God on the cross and lay down his own life for us. Christ came to die and on the third day to rise again so as to defeat death forever and forever remove the barrier of sin that separates us from God. That's the ultimate hope that these two miracles are pointing us to. Yes, this means a day is coming when sin and death and sickness and sorrow will be no more. But even now, Jesus says to us, John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The one question that remains this morning is this. How will we respond? There were many people in the crowd that day who were simply curious about Jesus. Perhaps they were literally just following the crowd or they just wanted to learn a little more about him. But there were two people there that day for whom Jesus was far more than just a curiosity. They knew that only Jesus could meet their greatest need. And so they fought their way through the crowd in order to ask for and receive it. And the same is true today. There are many people who take just a passing interest in Jesus. They're maybe familiar with who he is, but their lives remain unchanged by what they know because they refuse to actually go to him to be saved. Let's ask ourselves this morning, do I just know about Jesus or have I personally run to him and asked him to meet my greatest need, the forgiveness of my sins and a whole new relationship with God? It doesn't matter who you are or how long you've been coming to church. It doesn't matter how old you are. Kids and teens, it could be some of you that still need to do this for yourself this morning. Don't delay turning to Jesus and asking him to save you. He has never yet turned away a single sinner who sincerely asked to be saved. But what about those of us uh, who've already done that? What about us? For those of us to whom he's already answered, daughter, son, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How should we respond to Luke 8 this morning? Well, I suggest simply like this by continuing to go to Jesus with our every daily need, especially when our hearts are weighed down heavy with suffering or with fear. Life doesn't stop being stormy the day we become a Christian. So much in this present world is still so changeable and uncertain, but Jesus does not change. His compassion and his willingness to help us is the same today as it has always been. He is powerful and he is kind. He came to bring an end to all our fears and he is always poised and ready to say to us again, do not fear. 
Only believe and all will be well.